vision for these stories. So hi, everybody. I'm Peter Young. Hello. Hello. And I'm here to tell you that we have to be done by 8 today. All right? We only have this room until 8.15, so we're really going to we're gonna, we're gonna go pretty fast today. But this is the only week this year that we've got this weird stuff going on. So buckle up. Buckle up. All right, here we go. I want to talk to you today about being a neighbor. All right, so we just heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, as some people call it, but what I prefer to call as the parable of the neighbor, right? Because, you know, when Jesus was telling this parable, people weren't expecting the plot twist. So the parable of the neighbor, right? The question is, who's my neighbor? And it's found in the book of Luke. And so the Gospel of Luke focuses on this theme in Jesus' ministry of crazy inclusion, right? That Jesus included the unlikeliest of people. Luke is filled with stories of who's in and who's out, and it's a surprise, right? It's always a surprise, because he first, his first disciples, he calls, are fishermen, right? They're just done after a day's work saying, hey, we didn't catch any fish, and Jesus is like, why don't you try again? And they're like, dude, I do this for a living. Why are you telling me to, to, to go out and again? I just told you there's no fish. And Jesus is like, why don't you try it again? And they do, and they catch a bunch of fish, and they're like, whoa. And he's like, come follow me. And they're like, yes, sir. <laughs> All right? Just a few paragraphs later, he calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples, right? Someone who was not liked by his own people. Later on, he's questioned by the Pharisees why his disciples are so much more raw than John the Baptist's or the Pharisees' own disciples, right? He asked, they ask him, why don't they fast, right? Why don't they do any of these disciplines? Why don't they keep the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, these are the people who will follow me. They're the ones who will be teachable. They're the ones who will understand what I have to say. He then says, blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weepers, the hated, the insulted, and the excluded. These are the people who are blessed. Right? He says, a Gentile centurion's faith is greater than that of all Israel, and that the sinful woman anointing his feet is greater than the Pharisee in whose house he was sitting in. It's always a surprise who's in and who's out. Right? A demon-possessed man becomes a missionary, a bleeding woman is just as important to Jesus as, as an important man's daughter. And then we get to this parable of who is my neighbor. So maybe we shouldn't be too surprised when yet again, Jesus proves himself to be crazy and says that a Samaritan is not just your neighbor. He's the one being a neighbor to you. He's being a better neighbor to you. Right, the Jews and the Samaritans had a long centuries, centuries-long history of hating each other. Right? In some in some rabbis' teachings, it says that it's okay for a Jew to not help a Samaritan, right? Because they are that undeserving of help. And here, Jesus says, not only is a Samaritan your neighbor, he's a better neighbor to you than you are to him. When the teacher of the law is asking, who's my neighbor, it's a follow-on to his first question, right? What should I do to inherit eternal life? 
what these two questions combine to ask is, who is in and who is out, right? Who's on the inside? And Jesus says, it's not who you think. It's not your Jewishness that will save you. It's not that historically God has chosen you as his people. It's who is more like Yahweh, right? Who is more like God? That's who's on the inside. Jesus' inclusion and invitation was wide, and the people he attracted were so very different from him. I think we assume that because Jesus was God, he knew exactly who was going to come along and who wasn't. And so he just knew, oh, even though you look different, I've got the script in my head, and I'm going to ask you, Jacob, to follow me, and I know you'll say yes. And I'm going to, no, you'll say no, you'll say no. You, Ross, you'll follow me, so I'll ask you, right? We, we assume because Jesus was God, he had this script. He knew exactly who to ask. But I would like to posit, I would like to propose, <laughs> it means the same thing. I would like to propose that maybe Jesus was also fully human. Ooh, I know, I know, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge proposal, right? I don't, I don't know if we believe, do we believe that in here, that Jesus was fully human? Yeah. Yes, yes, because we're all Orthodox Christians, right? <laughs> Maybe Jesus was also fully human, and he didn't know. What if he didn't know who was going to follow him? What if he was just following God's direction and casting his nets wide and inviting recklessly, saying, Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Will you follow me? And some of them said no. And he wasn't sure who that was going to be. We don't get to know who's on the inside and who's on the outside based on outward appearance. So how do we know who's inside? How do we figure that out? There's a story, uh, there's a story of, a, of a poor rural Indian man called Papaya. All right, he lives in a small rural town and some missionaries come to his town and he learns about Jesus, he learns about God and he decides to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And the missionaries leave and so Papaya is the only one who has become a Christian in his town. And in his language, there is no good word for God. The missionaries did the best they could, but there's no good word for God. In his language, there is no word for supernatural being. There are only created beings, and there are some created beings that are greater than other created beings. And so the missionaries took this word for really great creature and said, this is, this is God. This is the best way that we can describe God. All right, so this is Jesus, this is God. And so this is how Papaya understands who God is, right? Would you consider him a Christian? Papaya doesn't have a church to go to, right? He's the only Christian in this town. There are no other Christians. He doesn't go to a place of worship. He doesn't go listen to sermons. He doesn't have a Bible in his language to read. Is Papaya a Christian? If Papaya is a Christian, then what do we really need to know about God? Right? Why are we here learning if Papaya is a Christian? If that's all you need to know, some vague notion of putting your faith in this 
really great creature, then why, are we, why, why do we need to read the Bible, right? If Papaya's not reading the Bible and he's a Christian, why do we need to read it? But maybe, all right, maybe, maybe it's not about what you know. Maybe it's, it's about a changed life, right? If there's fruit in his life, maybe that's what makes him a Christian, all right? But like I said, there's no church, there's no pastor, there's no more missionaries. All that's really changed in Papaya's life, right? Before, he was not a bad man. He was not going around doing bad things. So not much has changed in Papaya's life. He speaks a few words to this greater creature that he knows to be Jesus. He sings a few lines of hymns that the missionaries were able to translate. But that's it. Is Papaya a Christian? Because if he is, then what are we doing? Why do we need to be, you know, why do we need to go to church? Why do we need to, you know, do any of the things that we would consider part of being a Christian? But maybe our entire understanding of what makes a Christian is wrong. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Because it made the Jews of Jesus' time uncomfortable. When Jesus came and said, hey, guess what? What you thought made you God's chosen people is wrong. What if it's not about a certain threshold or standard of knowing enough about God? What if it's not a threshold or standard of how much your life has changed? What if it's simply a direction? A direction that I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow him wherever he goes as best as I can, even if that's very poor. What if that's what makes you a Christian? It's not your quiet times. It's not how often you go to church. It's not how many books of the Bible you've read. But just that you want to follow Jesus. Because if we're concerned about standards and thresholds, then we're asking the question, who is my neighbor? Right? Who, who's over this threshold? Right? Who is... Who, who fulfills this standard, rather than what direction am I heading? Am I being a neighbor? Am I following Jesus? When I say who's my neighbor, I'm asking where's the line? But what if there is no line? What if it's just a direction? I need to just be a neighbor. I need to follow Jesus. And I can invite others to come and see the man that I follow. Be a neighbor. Okay? Be a neighbor. That's the direction we're going. Be a neighbor who invites because everyone should come and see Jesus.
So then, when people respond to that invitation, what kind of neighbors can we be? We get to be the neighbors that everyone wishes they had. I think back to how you grew up, what kind of neighborhood you were in. Maybe it was good, maybe it was bad, something in between. Did you know your neighbors? Now, how, how could your neighborhood have been different if you did? We get to be the neighbors that everyone wishes they had. And here at FNF, we get to be that house in the neighborhood. Do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about that house? You know, there used to be a show called Everybody Loves Raymond. Has anyone seen that show? Oh, just a handful. It's a pretty old show. Um, it, was, it was when I was like a kid, um, but it's good, it's good. Me and my brother used to watch it all the time. Uh, so it was about uh, this actor, Ray Romano, was playing a guy called Raymond, which I don't know if that's legal for TV shows and movies to call an actor by their name, but whatever. Um, and he lives in this house, and his parents live across the street with his brother. And so basically, like, the whole premise of the show is, like, the hijinks that happens when there are, like, no boundaries when your parents and your brother, like, live across the street, and they just barge into your house all the time. And when I was growing up, one of my friends called my house the Everybody Loves Raymond house. Because my house was that house. That house where all the kids just go to hang out. That house where if you were hungry, you could just swing by, and there's either something my mom has cooked up or some snack in the pantry that you can have, right? It's that house. Anyone can come over anytime, whether it's one friend or a group of friends. Um, yeah, my friends would just sometimes barge in. No knock, no doorbell, just come in and see. Are Peter and Paul here? Like, can they come hang out? <laughs> right? This is like through high school. Um, and I can't say whether I loved or hated it at the time. It was just how my house was, right? My, my, my parents set this uh, example of hospitality, and we were the Everybody Loves Raymond house. We were that house. But even then, we weren't that house to everybody. We didn't know our next-door neighbors or the people, you know, down the street that way or down the street that way. It was just to some kids, mostly my friends from school or church families that we were that house for. But I think everybody needs a that house to go to, right? Every neighborhood needs that house. So when, when we are neighbors, when we're that neighbor, when we can be a neighbor, we can let people know that that house is right here, right? A place where people can belong and be loved, where if they're hungry, they can be fed. Um, one of my friends, one of my old friends from Washington, he lives in Seattle, and when we were kids, he was the boldest of the bunch, right? He, would just, he was the one who would barge in. He was the one who would walk in when none of us were there, just open up the fridge or the pantry, find something to eat, he might even leave before even, even seeing any of us. <laughs> you know, that's either deep friendship or entitlement <laughs> or both. <laughs> but uh, so he came to my wedding this past, uh, this past year, and I was like, you know, had so much preparations. I was running around crazy, 
and uh, he helped my brother take care of my family. Right? He drove them around and made sure that I didn't need to worry about them getting to the right place at the right time. Um, and I remember at my rehearsal dinner, my mom told him that she loved him and that he was always her other son because when he was at our house, he acted like he lived there. <laughs> but before that moment, it never clicked to me, it never clicked to me that he had lost his mom when he was young and that maybe my mom and our house filled a gap in his life just a little bit. What gaps might we get to fill when people are here with us? Who needs someone to be a neighbor to them? A brother, a sister, a mother, a father. Who needs someone to be a neighbor to them now? Right? Be a neighbor who welcomes, because you never know who you might become family to. All right, all right. I think I'm doing good on time. All right. Who was at fall camp this past semester? Nice, nice, nice. All right, keep those hands raised. Who played kickball? A couple of us, a couple of us. All right, that was pretty fun. That was pretty fun. All right, if you, if you ever get the chance to play kickball, it's a lot of fun. But one of the most interesting things I learned while refing kickball this year was how many of you do not know the basic rules of kickball? <laughs> kickball is just baseball but that doesn't actually help you that much. <laughs> it's not a slight against you, it was just very surprising to me. It was just a factoid I wanted to share with you guys because, surprise, surprise, you didn't have the same childhood as me. Who knew? But when I was a kid, we would play baseball in the backyard um, with a bright pink plastic bat and tennis balls. So maybe not baseball, but whatever, our, ver our version of it. My parents had one big blue glove that we would use sometimes between the three of us, me, my brother, and my cousin. And one day, I was maybe eight or nine, and uh, we were playing baseball in the backyard, and then the old man from next door walked over from his backyard, all right? So we had a fence, but it was still open at the front, so it was like pretty, you could just walk on, walk on over. And he came over, and I guess he had been watching us for a bit, because he told us, hey, did you guys know that if you hit a foul ball, after two strikes, it doesn't count as another strike. You can't get out on a foul ball. And we were like, what? <laughs> like this revolutionized the game for us. <laughs> At-bats became very, very long. Because, I mean, we were tiny, but we were throwing tennis balls. I mean, you could always clip that ball just a little bit. It was just foul ball, foul ball, foul ball, like all the time. And now we couldn't get out. But. So he told us this revolutionary piece of information. And then he went back to his house, and we kept playing. And a little while later, he came back with a baseball glove, a small kid's glove that was a perfect fit for me. And he gave it to me. And I loved that glove. I mean, it was rough on the inside. It was not like soft leather. It was like kind of scratchy. But it fit. It fit like a glove. And recently, uh, Mitchell and I went to Academy to look at baseball gloves, because I'd been having a hankering to get one for a few years. And gloves are expensive, all right? It's like 80 to like $150 expensive. Um, even the small kitty gloves are like 40 or 50 bucks, guys. And so, and I mean, they were all so different. Mitchell was telling me all about the different types of gloves and patterns for different positions. And I asked him like, what gloves, like, how, how do I figure out what glove I should get? 
And he said, a glove should feel like an extension of your hand. It's a part of your body, right? It's not an extra part, it's part of you. And that got me thinking, you know what? That little kitty glove that my neighbor gave me, that was part of me. That fit me perfectly. I don't know the name of that man. I don't know who he was other than he lived with his family next door. And a little while later, they moved. I, I do remember that before this glove instance, when we had first moved into our house, um, my parents had like mistimed us coming home, and for like 30 minutes, like we stayed at their house because we were just stuck outside, and they took us into their home. Um, so I have fond memories of that house and that neighbor. Um, I didn't really get to know them, but he was a neighbor to me, right? He saw kids having fun and decided to come help us have more fun. He gave me a glove, his old glove, to be a good neighbor. And sure, I mean, maybe he didn't have a use for that glove anymore. But if it was me, it would have had sentimental value, right? I mean, even now, that glove has sentimental value to me. I don't know if I would give it to him. I mean, probably since it was given to me. But like, there are other things in my life that weren't given to me that I don't, that I don't have a use for, but I don't know if I would give it to you. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's sentimental value, right? And so just because he didn't have a use for it doesn't mean it didn't cost him something to give it to me. So that man was a neighbor. So be a neighbor who looks out for others even if it's just a one-off thing, right? It doesn't need to lead to some big relationship, lifelong impact. Be a neighbor who looks out for others because you never know when your service to them or sacrifice for them is what they remember for the rest of their lives. I've never told that baseball glove story to anyone until now, right? I was just thinking about it. I was like, yeah, like that glove. I loved that glove. I don't really get to talk about baseball gloves a lot, so, you know, here we are. <laughs> so for you, this is our neighborhood, right? UTD is our neighborhood. There are 30,000 students here attending school. We pro you probably pass by a couple hundred, maybe a few thousand every day. Not just students, though, also professors. Be a neighbor to professors as well. You know, Brandon has this story of one of his grad school professors who abruptly told everyone to, that he was going to stop lecturing and that for them to work independently. And then that professor went to his desk and started to cry. So imagine, imagine if you will, a young Brandon in grad school in a room full of older grad business students. You know, young Brandon is slacking and chilling in the back of the room. I don't know what he was doing. I wasn't there. <laughs> and he sees this professor crying. I mean, Brendan tells me this story, and he looks around and is like, no one is going to go talk to him? So little Brandon gets up from the back of the room, walks down, and decides to be a neighbor to that professor. And he talks to that professor and learns that his mom had just died. Who is going to be a neighbor to him then, right? It'd be so easy for any student to say, oh, it's not my place, right? He's the professor, I'm the student. It's not my place to ask. 
but he needed someone right then and there to be a neighbor to him, to talk to him, to pray for him, even a young student. You know, maybe it's, maybe you can be a neighbor to someone in your class, right? Have you kept an eye out for anyone who might need help? Whether that's in school, in life, in friendship, not just, the, not just the, the, the friends that you have right next to you, but maybe that person at the other corner of the class. Do you keep an eye out for them? You know, someone eating alone in the student union, right? What's the worst that can happen? They can say no. No, I'm not a bleeding body on the side of the road. I don't need your help. All right, I'll move on. <laughs> but maybe if you were, if you did need help, who's going to be a neighbor to you? Maybe your roommate shuts, shuts her door when she's at home. Do you think to check in on her, to be a neighbor to someone who lives right there? You know, someone just walking to and from class might desperately need someone to stop and care for them. Uh, one of our pastors at Richland, while he was here at UTD, invited a passing student to come play Frisbee with him. Little did he know that that student's roommate had just committed suicide a few weeks before. We don't know who is this beaten, bloody Jewish man on the side of the road. Who is going to be a neighbor? You know, uh, back in the 1970s, they did a study on some seminary students. They told them to prepare a sermon on this parable, the parable of the neighbor, the Good Samaritan. And then... To some of them, they sent the research assistant to tell them, hey, people are waiting on you. We're already a few minutes late. We've got to go preach. You've got to go preach the sermon at this building across campus. And so they would send the student, and the student would walk alone to that building where they were to deliver the sermon. And along the way, along the way, there would be a man slumped in a doorway, coughing and moaning in distress. How many stopped? 10%. And to others, they told them, hey, they're expecting you at this other building. You've still got a few minutes to spare, but you should start heading over there. How many stopped for the man? 63%. Right? And so what this, what this study showed was that when we put ourselves in a hurried state, when we wait last minute to get somewhere, we're less likely to be a neighbor. Right? Now, I think there are ways that we can put ourselves in less hurried states, but we're never going to get there perfectly, right? We're always going to be last minute to something. And I, but I don't think that's an excuse still, right? 10% still stopped. They said, it's okay. Those people can wait a little longer. I'm going to be a neighbor today. Can we choose to be a neighbor every time? When someone is going through a tough time, when someone looks like they're in need, are we going to be like the priest and the Levite? Give them a wide berth. Someone else is going to come along, right? I'm not the most equipped to do this. I'm busy. Or are we going to be like the Samaritan? I'm going to be the neighbor. I'll take care of this person. I'll meet the need. Because when I see myself as a neighbor, I get the chance to be the first invite that someone gets, right? We get the chance to be a person's second home right here. We get the chance to become brothers and sisters to people. We get the chance to look out for someone and also to be looked out for. 
So be a neighbor because people need more neighbors. All right. So I'm going to ask Lindsay to come on up and I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you so much for, yeah, just bringing us here, for, yeah, guiding us to you. Pray that we're always, yeah, we're always on a path towards you, that we're following you, that we're not looking to um, our deeds or actions to prove that um, we're good enough. Only you. Only in following you, God, that you have called us good enough. You have called us to follow you before we ever did a thing. And so I pray that you would um, help us be a neighbor, like you are a neighbor to so many, one who looks out for others and invites them, who welcomes them, who sacrifices for them. Yeah, help us be a neighbor to everyone on this campus, students, professors, visitors, yeah, that we would every day follow you and become more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It makes me excited for the opportunity 